Well, many of you have likely known people throughout your life who were just constantly looking for change. People who couldn't sit still in one situation. They always had to be jumping from one thing to another. Back in high school and college, I used to work in a food service position. And I worked there for several years. And I met people throughout my tenure who would get hired long after me, and yet they would just be in the position for a few months, and they would nonetheless express how sick they were of the job, and they were already tired of it, and they were already bored, and they wanted to move on. I remember one coworker who had just recently started and gotten to try a lot of the different roles at the job, and she was already telling me, I'm so bored, I'm so sick of this job, I want to move on, I want to go somewhere else. No doubt you've known people or even just heard stories of celebrities who just fly through relationships. When I was studying for the sermon, I, I read online, unfortunately, that there's a famous pop star who holds the record for the shortest celebrity marriage of just under three days. It's tragic. And we sometimes laugh at how short-lived the teenage relationships or childhood relationships can last and how quickly one person moves on and kind of gets tired of the person, gets discontented, and decides to break up. Well, the length of your, your tenure at your high school job or how long your first childhood romance lasted is not especially consequential. But the Lord is clear that believers should be content in their external circumstances. Now that you're an adult, your circumstances may be a whole lot more serious. You may have a child who who has caused you unending grief through their rebellion, who you've prayed for for countless hours for years on end, and they just refuse to repent. Maybe you have a harsh boss and an underpaying job where you have little time to spend with your family, and yet all your applications for other jobs keep getting rejected, and, and you don't see a way out. Maybe a loved one got diagnosed with an illness, and you know there's going to be years of difficulty ahead. Regardless of what your circumstances are, the Lord has commanded that we should be faithful to him and to be contented in the condition in which we find ourselves. Believers should contentedly accept their external circumstances in their life and focus their efforts and their care on obedience to the Lord. Since our circumstances can often feel overwhelming and so central in our daily lives, we need to understand in greater detail how exactly the Lord wants us to think about our life situation. So in our text this morning, Paul gives us two examples to illustrate how believers should think about their present condition. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll begin reading in verse 17. All right, 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 17. God's word says, Only as the Lord is assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He's not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He's not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. 
For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Jay, if you could flip a couple of slides wherever you're at. I'm having trouble with this one. Well, in verse 17, Paul prevent, begins by providing us with a universal command. A universal command. He says, Only as the Lord is assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Paul tells the Corinthian believers that they, along with all the other believers he had ministered to and whose churches he had founded, should walk in the circumstances that God has called them in. As a reminder, this letter of 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, as he notes in the opening verses of the letter. Paul founded this church in Corinth, which is recorded for us in Acts chapter 18. Corinth was a well-traveled city for purposes of commerce. And as we've learned, it was especially immoral with thousands of temple prostitutes to false gods, so much so that the city was even a byword for sexual sin. It was a wicked city. Paul spent about a year and a half in Corinth doing ministry, focused initially on evangelizing the Jews and then later on more so with the Gentiles. As he went through his missionary journeys, Paul later spent three years in Ephesus, and near the end of that stay in Ephesus, he wrote this letter to these believers that he so dearly loved in Corinth. But as we've been studying, unfortunately, this wasn't a letter of, of saying good job and way to go. This letter, the theme is correction and condemnation. Paul's having to call out so many different sins, such as disunity and divisions, misuse of spiritual gifts, sexual immorality, and flaunting of Christian liberty. So as we come to chapter 7, as Bo taught last week, we've seen that Paul's addressing the issue of marriage. He is discussing the benefits of singleness, which he'll discuss later in the chapter. He discusses how you shouldn't deprive your spouse in your marriage so that neither of you are tempted to sin. And he exhorts believers who are married to unbelievers to remain married and not get divorced from the unbeliever if the spouse is willing to remain with them. They can have a sanctifying influence in that marriage. So with that background on the church in Corinth in this chapter, let's reread verse 17. Paul says, Only as the Lord is assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Paul states that God has assigned or called each believer into a certain set of circumstances. This is fitting, right? I mean, given the context of the previous verses in regards to marriage and singleness, Paul was likely responding to particular questions or situations he'd heard about in Corinth. And so he's reminding them that the Lord is sovereign. God is the one who has providentially orchestrated who you would marry or the fact that you would remain single. God's determined how long your spouse is going to live. God's determined what city you'll live in. God's determined what job you'll work at and what your vocation is. Paul's point here is that we've been saved in a particular set of circumstances. For each of us, it's different. And depending on the particular circumstance, it may be okay for you to respectfully seek to, to change that circumstance, as we'll see in a few minutes when we study about slavery. 
For other circumstances, such as your marriage, though, you're absolutely not at liberty to change those circumstances by getting a divorce unless you have serious biblical grounds, which Paul has just addressed. Ultimately, we should be content, though, in our circumstances. We should be content where God has called us and assigned to us. And the focus of our life, regardless if we, if we choose to change circumstances or if we choose to remain where we're at, should be to keep the Lord's commandments. And we'll see that in a few verses as well. We should absolutely not be spending our time worrying or fretting about our life situation. Ultimately, I think this verse, verse 17, fits well as a theme to kind of tie together the whole chapter in regards to marriage and contentedness with your marital status as well as contentedness with circumcision status or contentedness with your slavery. Paul concludes the verse by saying, and so I direct in all the churches. This command to walk in the circumstances God called you in was not just to Corinth. It was to all the churches Paul ministered to, and Jesus chose Paul specifically as his messenger. He was an apostle, so this command applies to us as well. It's a universal command. After Paul provides this universal command regarding contentedness with your circumstances, he moves on to provide a specific circumstance to flesh out this command. In verses 18 through 20, we see contentedness with your religious circumstances, specifically with circumcision. Let's read those verses. Paul says, Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He's not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He's not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Specifically, as we come to verse 18, Paul provides the religious example to illustrate the commands to remain in your circumstances. The religious example. He said, was any man called when he was already circumcised? He's not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called an uncircumcision? He's not to be circumcised. Paul here gives both sides of the coin to this hot-button issue that was the center of a ton of controversy back in the first century. We've already discussed the broader command here about being content with your circumstances. And so let's dig into this circumcision a bit so we can more fully grasp the point Paul's trying to make here and why he's bringing circumcision up in this chapter about marriage. As you probably know, circumcision is the removal of foreskin from a man. It was a mark given in the Old Testament by God to the Israelites so that they'd have a kind of physical differentiation or a symbol that separates them from the pagans that are around them. In Genesis 17, verses 9 through 14, God first lays out this command. He enters into a covenant with Abraham, and he says that every male baby should be circumcised at eight days old. Specifically in verse 11 of Genesis 17, he says, And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So circumcision was a sign of God's covenant between Abraham and Abraham's Jewish descendants in the Old Testament. So having gone through that and just read God's clear command in Genesis 17, the question becomes, how do we get to where we are in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul is saying circumcision's nothing, uncircumcision's nothing, don't get circumcised 
if you're currently uncircumcised? How do we reconcile the fact that God commands it and then now Paul is saying it's meaningless? To answer this question, turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. This is a pivotal chapter where Paul and the other elders and apostles had to address this very issue. And if you're familiar at all with the New Testament, you know the circumcision issue continues to come up. But here we see, we see, we understand what's going on, why, why God commanded it, and then why now Paul is saying circumcision is nothing. So Acts 15, I'll begin reading in verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Clearly this was important. Picking up in verse 5, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, Therefore, why, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they'd stopped speaking, James answered saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And here he's going to quote from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. That says, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Verse 19, this is James speaking again. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, from what is strangled, and from blood. Acts 15 is so crucial as we try to understand this circumcision issue. As James points out in verses 15 through 18 of Acts 15, while God had chosen to enter into a covenant with Abraham and his descendants, in later times, God's plan was always to save a people from every nation, the Gentiles. In this Old Testament quote that James pulls from Amos, it doesn't say that these other nations that they need to proselytize to Judaism and take on those outward symbols like circumcision of being a Jew in order to be saved. None of that's mentioned. I think the most crucial verses of this chapter come in verses 10 and 11 where Peter says, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. We're saved by grace through faith. We don't need circumcision. God gave Abraham and his descendants a sign for this, for this covenant back in Genesis 17. And when the time came for the Lord to fully reveal the mystery of the salvation of the Gentiles at the coming of Jesus, this Old Testament sign, it wasn't necessary anymore. In Galatians 2, Paul recounts how Peter and Barnabas had stopped associating with Gentiles in the Galatian church when there were certain Judaizers who were saying and pushing the circumcision issue when they had shown up. Paul has to call Peter and Barnabas out and remind them that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Paul ends that section of Galatians 2 saying, if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died needlessly. This theme is all throughout Galatians. In chapters 5 and 6, Paul says, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Every man who receives circumcision is under obligation to keep the whole law. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Galatians 6.15, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So circumcision is not necessary for salvation. But you may be wondering, you know, in Old Testament times, did God used to, was his interaction with mankind primarily just these external symbols like circumcision? And then as the New Testament comes, all of a sudden, God decides he's, he's more concerned with the heart. That's, that's not how it is. Even back in Deuteronomy, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10, and we'll see that God's concern has always been primarily with the heart. Deuteronomy chapter 10. For context, in these verses in uh, Deuteronomy 10, Moses is recounting the time when he brought the Ten Commandments down the second time from Mount, Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy 10, I'll begin reading in verse 12. Moses says, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today for your good. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Circumcise your heart. Moses tells the Israelites that God's primary concern is the circumcision of their hearts that they fear and that they obey and that they love and that they serve God. We see these same kinds of discussions of circumcision of the heart being God's concern in Deuteronomy 30, 6 through 10, and in Jeremiah 4, verse 4. So let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, back in verse 18, Paul says that anyone who is already circumcised when they were saved, they don't need to be uncircumcised. And anyone who's uncircumcised should not be circumcised. The point is, despite the obsession of these Judaizers with, with this external symbol, this circumcision, and the pressure that was so intense that even Peter and Barnabas were giving in to prejudice and being unkind to people or treating people differently based on their circumcision status, believers should remain in the condition in which they were called. We shouldn't be preoccupied with our circumcision status. We should be satisfied in the circumstances that God has assigned to us. 
I'll just say as we're going through this, Paul is not just, you know, being parallel here by saying if you're uncircumcised, don't be circumcised, and if you're circumcised, don't be uncircumcised. There actually were several historical sources provide that um, there were Jews who were dispersed in foreign lands who were ashamed of the fact that they were associated with Yahweh based on the fact that they were circumcised, and people might notice that. And so they actually went through a painful medical procedure to see if they could reverse that. That's what this phrase, he's not to be uncircumcised, appears to be referring to. The point is, regardless, don't focus your life on changing your circumstances. Well, in verse 18, we saw the religious example of a situation where believers should be content with their circumstances. As we come to verse 19, Paul helps realign the Corinthian perspective on circumcision by showing us the spiritual priority. He says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Paul's statement here is unequivocal. He leaves no room for the Judaizers to add additional requirements for salvation. He left no room for the Judaizers to add additional burdens to believers that they needed to keep in order to be in good standing with God. He says your religious sign that God meant merely as an external symbol of an inward spiritual reality with his people Israel that you've twisted into a primary focus for salvation. This circumcision means nothing. And we've already read several verses in Galatians and Colossians that say the same thing, circumcision is meaningless. So what is important? What really matters? Y'all can respond here. It's in the text. What, what does matter? Keeping the commandments of God. That's right. What matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. How relevant this verse is in our day. First of all, if there's any of you who feel especially strongly that all babies need to be circumcised and you're willing to argue with people and divide over that issue, I would say you need to stop doing that on the authority of Paul. Paul makes it clear that circumcision status is frankly unimportant and it's irrelevant. So make the wisest decision for you and for your family and feel free to have peaceful dialogue, but don't divide over this issue. Paul couldn't be more clear. Secondly, after making it clear that circumcision is not an important focus for believers, Paul says keeping God's commandments is what is important. So my question for you is, do you have your own kind of circumcision issue that's a Christian liberty issue that you'd be willing to divide with other believers over? That circumcision debate, at least last I checked, seems to have cooled off just a little bit, and it's not the top trending topic on podcasts and talk radio nowadays. But there are many other trending topics today that people absolutely love to divide over. Many of them are topics that the scripture doesn't speak specifically to. It's crucial we come to every discussion through the lens of scripture, and we remember that scripture is sufficient for all we need for life and godliness. But when God's word doesn't speak specifically to an issue, are you careful not to become too strong of a proponent of it? I'm not here to step on toes or anything, but when you speak to topics like environmentalism or natural versus hospital births or tax policy or which vaccines kids, parents should or shouldn't give their kids, do you come to those topics with humility, 
knowing that God's word says very little about them and that godly men could come to different conclusions on some of those issues? Would you be unkind to a brother or would you divide with a sister if they disagreed with you on one of those topics? What about homeschooling versus public or private schooling? Immigration policy, gun rights. These topics are so divisive in our day. I'm not going to pretend that they're completely irrelevant or that there's not a holy way to discuss them. But if you heard me bringing up those topics and your heart started racing and, and you felt more passion when I brought that up than when Tom gave a gospel presen- presentation an hour ago, something's off there. I'll admit that when I typed out that list of topics, my blood got boiling as well. So I'm right there with you. I understand. But my brothers and sisters, make it your aim today and the rest of this week to focus on God's commandments and to stir up your heart for the Lord. Rejoice in the gospel. Pour out your heart to God for the salvation of your unsaved family and friends and coworkers. Cause your heart to burst with joy when you consider God's love for you and his sacrifice for you. And seek to know him better through his word. Train yourself to prioritize the commandments of God rather than immersing yourself, as is so easy in these temporal controversies of our day. Shout from the rooftops on the topics that the Bible shouts about and whisper and barely audible whisper on topics where the Bible whispers. In the words of Paul in chapter 1, verse 10 of this book, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul knew that people are sinners in need of the gospel. We need to repent of our sins and keep God's commandments. That's enough to focus on. We don't need to add extra burdens like like our political preferences on fiscal issues or, or circumcision or the latest trend on some podcast we adhere to. We don't need to add these burdens to our fellow believers. In Paul's words, circumcision's nothing, uncircumcision's nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. As we come to verse 20, Paul transitions from the spiritual priority to the overriding principle. The overriding principle. He says, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. We see a similar phrase in verse 24. And really, Paul's just echoing that same universal command that we saw in verse 17. Each man needs to remain in the condition in which he was called. If you were circumcised when you were saved, that's great. Stay that way. If you were uncircumcised when you were saved, perfect. No need to change that. We need to trust the Lord's sovereignty over our external circumstances and focus on the important things, namely keeping the commandments of God. Well, Paul doesn't stop there with his illustration of what it looks like to be content with your circumstances. In verses 18 through 20, we saw contentedness through the religious circumstances using the example of circumcision. As we come to verses 21 through 24, Paul teaches us contentedness with our social circumstances using the example of slavery. He says, were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. For he who is called on the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. 
Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Well, in verse 21, Paul provides us with the social example. The social example. He said, were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. What a statement, right? Continuing on this theme of being content in your circumstances in your life situation, Paul tells slaves that they are free to pursue freedom from slavery, but ultimately, don't worry about it. I love the way the NIV translates that phrase, don't worry about it. It says, don't let it trouble you. Don't be troubled by it. This fits into Paul's broader theme about being content in all your circumstances. So I don't want to lose you here just because we're discussing slavery and none of you are slaves as far as I know. But what does it mean to worry about something? Paul says, do not worry about it. What does it mean to worry? Imagine a person who, who stays up all night for many nights, gripped with fear and frustration over their life circumstances, fear that they'll never get married, worried that their prodigal daughter will will never speak to them again, anxious that they won't get to spend as much time with their ill spouse as they had already always planned. These are tough circumstances. But if you're gripped with fear, you're not consumed with the blessings that God has given you through the free gift of salvation. Your heart's not overflowing with gratefulness to God for for saving you, for forgiving your sins, for giving you a family of believers, and for storing up for you an eternal reward for all eternity. We have so much to be grateful for. Jesus is clear that we should not worry in the Sermon of the Mount. God's word is so clear on that. This kind of overpowering worry is not God's call to us. His call is not to worry about our circumstances being just constantly fixated on how we can change them. His call is to keep his commandments and to faithfully walk with him day by day. So let's consider this particular example here of slavery that Paul gives. What is slavery? Slavery is when someone owns an individual and by extension owns their labor. You can tell them what to do essentially. While slavery in the Roman Empire, it wasn't necessarily as heinous as what we think of in the early years of America, it nonetheless meant that you were not free to do as you please, and ultimately you had to submit your life to your master. Most slaves were poor and subject to the whims of cruel masters, so it was a hard life. This text is clear, though, that Slaves should not have as their primary objective to be free from their bondage. That shouldn't be what consumes them. They should be focused instead on loving and obeying the Lord. Just as a quick aside, and I know most of you in the room would know this, but Exodus 21.16 says that kidnapping, either to sell a person or keep the person for yourself, it's punishable by death. So God's word is clear that what occurred during American slavery is Completely condemned, and the Bible doesn't condone that. There's people that may say that's true, but absolutely not. That was for free. That was just an aside. So how can we apply this text about slavery that Paul's addressing to slaves living in Greece several thousand years ago? How do we bring it to today? Well, for those of you currently under the employment of someone else, 
Do you find yourself frustrated by your boss? Do you find that the complaints that your coworkers share about your manager resonate with you? Or if you are honest, would you have to say that you violated God's command in Philippians 2.14 to do all things without grumbling and disputing, and you've complained at your, at your job? While we, unlike slaves, or many slaves, we, don't have, we do have the freedom, rather, to resign in our jobs and work elsewhere if we so desire. But we're absolutely not free to complain at our jobs or to worry at our jobs or to be discontented with our circumstances at work. God's word is clear on that. We should not be obsessing over our employment status. And while it's not the point of our text in 1 Corinthians 7, I think it's important to point out here when we're discussing slavery and what the Bible says about that and by extension employment, we need to be working hard in our jobs as though we were submitting our work to Jesus Christ himself. For passages that deal without slaves and by extension employees and by application employees should conduct themselves in their work, feel free to jot down Titus 2, 9 and 10. 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, and Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. But specifically in Colossians 3, 22 through 24, I think Paul sums it up well, and he broadens it to everyone in all their work. He says, Slaves, and all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external services, those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So keep in mind that you not only shouldn't be consumed with your employment status, but you should be a hard worker and work as to the Lord. And keep in mind that while your hard work may be unappreciated and your boss may never thank you and your clients may be demanding of you, and your patients may yell at you, and your students may sneer at you, and your work may go unnoticed while you're working here on earth. Don't forget that your reward, it comes later. Your inheritance cannot be reneged on, and it's no temporary reward. So many of the rewards we seek are so fleeting, but it's not a temporary reward for eternity. It's, it's a reward that you'll enjoy in the presence of your perfectly just Lord for all of eternity. So take comfort in that and do your work heartily as to the Lord. Well, in verse 22, Paul proceeds from bringing up the social example to illustrate his point about contentment to bringing up the spiritual realities and explaining the spiritual realities at play when it comes to slavery. Verse 22 says, For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. For those of you in Christ, you now belong to Jesus. In one sense, you've been freed by Jesus, and that's a, a glorious reality. Yet in another sense, you're a slave of Jesus. Regardless of whether your labor is owned by someone else or you're Self-employed and free from any earthly boss, you are both a slave and free in Jesus Christ. So in what sense did Jesus free us? How are we free through Jesus Christ? Turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and here Jesus will explain this freedom and how he freed us. 
John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants, and we've never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. God's word set us free. His truth sets us free. We used to commit sin, and so we were slaves to sin. As Pastor Tom has said before, if you're not in Christ and you doubt that you're a slave to sin, my ask of you would be try to stop sinning and let me know how that goes and let me know if you disagree that you're a slave to sin. While we see that Jesus freed those of us in Christ from our former master, we're still slaves. The New Testament authors call themselves slaves. In the first verses of Romans, Philippians, Titus, James, 2 Peter, Jude, Revelation, all those authors call themselves the slaves or bondservants of Jesus Christ. So if you object to the fact that you're called a slave, I think you'll have to take it up with them. After Jesus gives a parable in Luke chapter 17, comparing himself to the master and us to his slaves, he says in verse 10, So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves, and we've done only that which we ought to have done. We only do what we ought to do. We're Jesus' slaves. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 23 is pivotal for understanding our old slavery and our new slavery and our old boss and our new boss. Though we as believers were slaves of sin, we became slaves of righteousness. Verse 23 of Romans 6, many of you are familiar with, and, and that's kind of the culmination of that discussion of our previous and present masters. And Paul says that the wages of sin, the payment that we got from our old boss, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We had a harsh master whose only paycheck to us for all the work we did for him was death on this earth, physical death, and then eternal death away from God. Yet our new master is gracious, and he's given us an eternal reward. For you in Christ, your, your slavery is of a completely different kind. It's almost unrecognizable to what your slavery was like before. Tragically, though, I know that there may be those of you here who are still slaves to sin. You still obey it. You still obey its lusts. If you've never submitted yourself to God and to Jesus as your master, and if you refuse to keep God's commands, then you're still a slave of sin. You may think you're a good person and that those good deeds you do outweigh the bad ones and that you'll be good in the end. But James chapter 2, verse 10 says that whoever keeps the whole law, you obey everything God's required, and yet you stumble in one point, you're guilty of all. There's a holy God who's your creator, and you've rebelled against him by not keeping his commands perfectly. Your only hope is to cast yourself on Jesus Christ as your new master and to obey his command in Mark 1.15 to repent of your sins and to be willing to give them up and also to believe in Jesus and believe in his gospel 
for salvation. Submit to Jesus as your master, and I promise you, he's the most gracious, wonderful master that there ever was. Consider Jesus' invitation in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, where he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is a gracious, gentle master. My prayer for you today would be that you would repent and believe in him. Well, after Paul provides us with the spiritual realities about slavery in verse 22, he gives us a cautionary reminder in verse 23. He says, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. John MacArthur argues, and I agree with his interpretation here, that this command, do not become slaves of men, it's referring to slavery to the ways of men or slavery to your flesh or slavery to the sinful ways of the world. Jesus Christ purchased you, believer, with his life. So don't become a slave of men again. Back in Romans 6, Paul repeatedly urges believers not to let sin reign in their lives and not again obey sin's urges. Our flesh is so weak. My flesh is so weak. And we sadly will look wistfully back at our old sins and at times, but we have to remember that the result of our slavery to sin, we saw that in Romans 6.23, it's death. When you're faced with temptation, turn your gaze to Jesus. Remember when he saved you. Remember the freedom you felt when you realized you'd finally been set free from that horrendous, selfish, wicked, unjust master. Remember the awe in your heart when you first came to understand that your new master is compassionate and that he's gracious and that he's slow to anger and overflows with steadfast love and that everything he says is honest and true. You may have moments of weakness where you long to turn back to those old ways of sin, of, of giving in to anger or of gossiping or slandering or talking hatefully to others. You may be tempted to go back to complaining about your circumstances or, or to lusting or to speaking and behaving in a sexually immoral manner. I don't know what sins you're tempted to, but you may have a powerful urge telling you to go back to that old boss and that old master. In those moments, bring to mind the sacrifice of your Lord. He stooped down and he became like one of us. He lived a humble, unassuming life and he perfectly adhered to God's righteous law. And then he endured God's wrath and he died on that cross and gave himself up as a pure sacrifice in our place. And then he rose three days later and now he stands before God interceding for you, praying that you'll live a holy life and be obedient to him and bring glory to God. Let Jesus be your motivation and fighting the advances of your old master when you're tempted to sin. Jesus is now your master, and you are now his slave. Don't again become a slave of men. As we come to verse 24, Paul repeats the overriding principle of this passage and ultimately this chapter. He says, brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Paul's command to you here today is to remain in the condition in which you are called. 
God's sovereign over all things, and that includes your specific situation and your circumstances. Maybe you've got medical bills up to your ears and you, you don't see an end in sight. You can't catch a break. Borrowing from the broader context of 1 Corinthians 7, maybe you're single and, and you're frustrated by the fact that you can't find a partner. Or perhaps you're frustrated with your spouse and you wish that they would change. Maybe you recently lost a loved one and you find yourself looking back longingly at the days when they were still with you. These circumstances are difficult. Each of us has our own situation that God's called us in. Some of them, like our jobs, can be pretty easily adjusted on a whim if you wanted to change them. Many of our circumstances are, are pretty set in stone. God's reminding you through this text to remain in the condition in which you are called. What's most important in your life, as we saw in the previous verse, was keeping the commandments of God. And if your prime joy in life is your Lord and, and you look at what your life was like before he called you and to what a mess your life would look like if he hadn't called you, and if you consider the everlasting joy that awaits you when you're in his presence without any more sin and without any more sorrow, if you bring these things to mind, then you'll be able to bear up under the trials the Lord brings you through. May each of us find our joy and find our identity in Christ and not spend our days worried about and focused on changing our circumstances. Let's pray. Father, thank you for freeing us from the power of sin. Thank you that for those of us in Christ, we're your freedmen. And thank you for your gentleness and your continual love towards us as your master. For any hearing this message, God, who are still slaves to sin, please help them to see their own sinfulness and help them to see your love bleeding through the ink of every page of your word. And God, I pray that they would cast themselves on you in repentance and faith. And Lord, for your faithful slaves in this audience who are, who are going through grueling trials, I pray that you would help them bear up under trial if they're tempted to despair. And God, help them to take comfort in you and find their ultimate satisfaction in knowing you. I pray, God, that each of us would remain faithful to you until you return or until you call us home. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.